other news, violin duo, two-set violin, under fire from Blackpink fans after parody video. I wonder if you uh, came across this news article in the Straits Times a couple of months ago. For those of you who don't know what's going on, Blackpink is a South Korean girl group who released a new song called Shut Down in September. This hip-hop number samples two bars of Italian composer Niccolo Paganini's violin concerto repeatedly throughout the song. As classical musicians, two-set violin were offended by how Paganini's music was abused. So they wrote a response song called Sell Out and released a parody music video with them dressed up as Paganini and Mozart. In these personas, they rapped provocative lyrics, roasting Blackpink for their lack of musical talent, among other things. Blackpink fans didn't find that funny. Is Rachel Wong here? No? <laughs> Your sense. So they retaliated with ferocious attacks against Tuset on every other social media platform. And because Tuset was coming to perform at the Victoria Concert Hall with the Singapore Symphony Orchestra, Blackpink tried to shut down their concert. Throughout the entire saga, Blackpink, fan, uh, Blackpink uh, themselves didn't make any comments. Paganini, on the other hand, Paganini's been dead for 200 years. Who would have thought that disciples of classical music would cross swords with fans of popular music? The background to our passage from Matthew is also the tension between two groups of followers, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. We are alerted to the underlying tension between them by what Jesus says in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What offense has Jesus caused? Did he get a bad haircut? To find out, we have to piece together several passages from various Gospels. So please bear with me. We know from the Gospels that Jesus and John first encountered each other when Jesus went to be baptized. After Jesus' baptism, John realized that he's the Christ and Jesus leaves him for his temptation in the wilderness. That they would meet each other again in the countryside and this is where trouble begins. John chapter 3 records, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aaron near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. What do you get when you put two different groups of people both providing the same service side by side? Comparison law, if not competition. It's like having two chicken rice stores in the same hawker center. Uh, who will you choose? Will you go to John, the original baptizer, or will you go to Jesus, who has performed signs and miracles? As it happens, more often than not, people chose Jesus over John. Seeing this, John's disciples complained to their teacher, Rabbi, look, Jesus is baptizing, and all are going to him. From their point of view, their teacher, who is famous in Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan, is now losing popularity because of a copycat who came after him. Naturally, they were jealous and angry. Naturally, they were offended. From then on, Jesus's, uh, John's disciples sorry, paid attention to what Jesus was doing, trying to find fault with him. Matthew records the disciples of John confronting Jesus. 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They were trying to shut him down. And in case we think the problem lies with John's disciples, we should note that Jesus' disciples also made comparisons. Luke records them asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Clearly, both camps have been exchanging notes and neither party wants to lose out to the other. The tension between the two groups of disciples is not obvious in the Bible, but it's present. And just as the tension between Blackpink and Paganini fans did not involve Paganini and Blackpink directly, the tension between the disciples of Jesus and John did not involve John and Jesus directly. In fact, John was never jealous of Jesus. He was delighted that people were flocking over. Less work for him, maybe. His reply to Jesus, uh, sorry, to his jealous disciples was this. You yourself bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John has no intentions of snatching the bride for himself. As a prophet who serves God, he is delighted to see God among men and people turning to God. Indeed, John took every opportunity to point his disciples to Jesus so that they may leave him and follow Christ. For example, in John chapter 1, we see, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. One of the two was Andrew, who later became an apostle. In spite of John's efforts, he had some die-hard followers who would not go to Jesus. Verse 2 says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. We see here that although John has been locked up by Herod, he still has people by his side. Now, if we recall how Peter and the apostles scattered when Jesus was arrested, we realize how dedicated John's disciples are. Nevertheless, John is equally dedicated to his mission. If his disciples would not leave him, he could send them away. And so John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? On account of this question, some have said that John doubted the identity of Jesus. But after we've heard about John and the tension between their disciples, I believe in the alternative interpretation. I believe that John didn't doubt him. To him, Jesus is the Christ. This question was just a pretext, an excuse to get his disciples to go to Jesus, to listen to his teaching and to see what he's doing. And then perhaps they would be convinced that Jesus is the coming one. So Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. I think Jesus understood John's intentions. Which is why when his disciples came to him, 
Jesus explained the scriptures to them and did many signs and miracles in the very hour that they came to see him. And after they have heard and seen, Jesus instructs them to return to John on the pretext of reporting back to their teacher. But his real purpose, perhaps, was for them to witness to the remainder of John's disciples so that they may also believe. And so we're back at where we started. Jesus ends with, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is to say, those who accept the Messiah, even though they don't like what he's done, will receive salvation. In this case, John's disciples may receive salvation if they believe Jesus is the Christ, even though they don't like that he has surpassed their teacher. For subsequent readers of this gospel, they may receive salvation if they believe that Jesus is the Christ, even though Jesus was executed on the cross. Our Lord ended with this conditional blessing as an invitation for John's disciples to be reconciled to him. And it is the same for everybody else. Our passage is very rich and there are many directions we can go. But this time I want to talk about celebrity church culture. Kerry Newhoff observed, as long as there have been people there has been the desire to assign loyalty to whomever you like best. In the early church, disciples chose between Jesus and John, Paul and Apollos. During the Reformation, it was perhaps between Martin Luther and John Calvin. Today, maybe people are comparing Nicky Gumbel to J. John, Joseph Prince to Kong Hee, Benny Ho to Edmund Chan. I don't know anyhow drop names. Loyalty to a favorite pastor expresses itself by attending their church services, buying their books, subscribing to their video content, and following them on social media. Loyalty also involves being jealous for their reputation and jumping to their defense when uh, they get into trouble. Fans of Paganini, Blackpink, and John are good examples. Being loyal to a favorite pastor is nothing new. However, since technology has increased our access to them and amplified their influence on us, our loyalty has now elevated them to celebrity status. And because this status has been extended to Christian songwriters, bands and famous converts such as uh, Justin Bieber, besides the uh, pastors and preachers, it is now a full-blown church culture. Celebrity church culture can be a force for good. Just as John the Baptist needed to be somehow famous to attract people to make the journey into the wilderness to be baptized, modern Christian figures need to be famous in order to attract the attention of an overly entertained generation. Earlier this month, our own uh, Senior Citizens Fellowship invited local actress Felicia Chin to share at our Christian uh, Christmas evangelistic outreach. Who's Felicia Chin? Chen Fengling, Chen Fengling. So I was able to persuade my mother to watch the live stream because of Felicia Chin's household name. Otherwise, she won't bother, right? Uh, so sometimes, you know, Christians need an excuse to bring people to church. Non-Christians also need excuse to come to church. So we like celebrities, yeah? But celebrity church culture can also be bad for us. And I'm not talking about uh, when uh, church celebrities uh, fall from grace. Caleb Gregson suggests... Fundamentally, 
The negative aspects of a Christian celebrity culture are an outgrowth of our desire to have a leader we can see. We want a king like the nations have to lead us into battle. We want the Christian movie star, musician, or pro athlete to appeal to our non-Christian neighbor and persuade them that Christianity is reasonable. In other words, celebrity church culture can be a symptom of idolatry. We can try to fill the emptiness of our hearts, that God-shaped hole, with a Christian we can see and hear and stalk on Instagram, rather than Christ who is invisible. This is perhaps what was happening to John's disciples. They refused to believe in Jesus because their hearts were filled with John. But it's also a symptom of something else. Gregson continues. We want these kinds of figures because we love Christ, good, but also perhaps because we are unsure whether the regular, ordinary Christian can accomplish the mission. He is suggesting that we may be raising up celebrities because we doubt our own abilities to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Last week, Reverend Jonathan uh, was talking about how we set impossible standards for ourselves. And when we fall short of these standards, we either try harder or we give up. There appears to be a third option. Get someone else to do for you. Outsource land. At best, celebrity culture is a genuine attempt to leverage on someone's talent and popularity to advance the kingdom. At worst, we are hiding behind church celebrities so that we don't have to do the work ourselves. Why do we doubt our own abilities to evangelize and make disciples? Have we made church celebrities our standards which we then find impossible to achieve? Is this why we push the job to somebody else? Thus we hear church members say, evangelism and discipleship making are the pastor's job. And the pastors say, alamat, better find someone famous. It becomes a vicious cycle. Some questions for reflection before we continue. Have we replaced Jesus with a church celebrity? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission? Do we have realistic expectations of how we are to fulfill the Great Commission? Let's return to our passage. So far, we've uncovered the underlying tension between John and Jesus' disciples. We see that John's reaction is to continue testifying to Christ. And we saw how Jesus tried to make peace with John's disciples. Now let's see what happens next. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Jesus spoke for John to reconcile his own disciples to John, even as he has reconciled John's disciples to himself, especially because John is now in prison and his reputation is at an all-time low. Jesus employs a series of rhetorical questions, which I will paraphrase as we go along. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I'm sure you did not go out to the wilderness for the scenery, 
because there's nothing to see there but grass. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. I'm sure you did not go there to meet someone rich and famous, because they don't hang out there. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Surely you made the journey to see someone who has a message from God. And I tell you, you have no idea how important that prophet is. All this talk is to confirm John's identity as a prophet of the Lord at a time when it seems like God has forsaken him. By doing so, Jesus upholds everything that John has said and done. John's testimony about the Messiah is not disqualified because of his incarceration. John has spoken the truth about Jesus because he is a man from God. John's ministry may not be discredited either. Those who receive the forgiveness of sins through his baptism are truly forgiven. Jesus' confirmation would have brought much reassurance to the crowds who may be anxious because of John's circumstances. And if the disciples were gloating over John's downfall, they will now know better. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He elevates John further. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John is more than a prophet because he is the prophet whom Malachi says will come before the Christ to announce his arrival. He is also the prophet who will prepare the way of the Lord by making disciples for the Messiah. The angel Gabriel says this more clearly in his prediction. John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. His mission in life is to call people to repentance, teach them how to live righteously and present this faithful community to the Messiah when he comes. The scripture tells us that John did wonderfully. He turned many people to God through his preaching of the forgiveness of sins. The book of Acts shows that those who received John's baptism readily accepted the Lord when they heard the gospel later on. And most importantly, when Jesus was revealed, John sent all his disciples to follow Christ. Thus, Jesus says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Surely, he is the disciple-maker par excellence. Therefore, let no one despise John or ignore his message because of his tragic fate. The problem for us is, verse 11 doesn't end there. Jesus continues saying, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Oh Lord, what is this? Is he good or no good? And you know, this is a difficult verse when Bible commentators don't agree on the same interpretation. But from what I've gathered, I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. 
Our Lord is aware that people are discussing and comparing the teachers of his day. They want to know who is the greatest, John, Jesus, or the Pharisees. So he tells them, truly, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. But this doesn't mean that John is the top guy and even better than Jesus himself. It means that John represents the highest standard. Therefore, anyone as successful as John will be considered great as well. However, this standard of human greatness is an earthly one, born of women. Those in the kingdom of heaven, everyone born of the spirit, will be judged by a brand new standard. This heavenly standard is the obedience of faith. God judges his people according to their faith in Christ, demonstrated by obedience to God's commandments. By this heavenly standard, so long as we believe in Jesus Christ, obey the great commandments, do something about the great commission, then we have attained to the highest standard, even though we may not, we may not appear particularly successful on earth. What this means is, the regular, ordinary Christian is as great as John the Baptist. The regular, ordinary Christian is as great as any celebrity Christian in the eyes of God. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No doubt, celebrity Christians are great because they can draw crowds to come to listen to the gospel at our special services. But you are also great because you're the one who's around every week for the new believer. Celebrity pastors are great because they can preach life-changing sermons. But you are also great because you're there for each other through the changing seasons of life. Who can enjoy uplifting worship events if ordinary worship teams have not taught and introduced new songs to us week in, week out? Who can appreciate flashy sermons if ordinary members have not laid the foundations for us in Sunday school and Bible study? And who will join the church if there is nobody normal and ordinary like you sitting in the pews? You really want to sit beside Felicia Chin? Man? There are many celebrity Christians and wannabes out there. But the faithful sister who prays for me, the loving brother who rebukes me, and the familiar face who serves alongside me, you are my celebrity. Allow me to conclude. With the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God living in the end times are called to witness and make disciples for him. John the Baptist, who was born for this purpose, sets the standards for the church in faith and faithfulness. Because Jesus vindicated John when he was down and out, we know that our Lord will also uphold us before God even when people misunderstand, malign, and persecute us as we seek to do his will. Most importantly, while we judge our greatness by human standards of success, God judges using standards of faith. In his eyes, our small and insignificant contributions are just as valuable as our big 
and extravagant displays. Therefore, as we continue to leverage on celebrity power, or even a big production like Christmas in Queenstown, may we also encourage each other in our everyday witness and disciple-making to fulfill the Great Commission. May the Church work together to present everyone mature in Christ to him who is coming again. Amen. Check. Yeah. Let's take a moment to reflect on the Word of God. Consider how he has called each and every one of us. That we all have a part to play, that we all are called and chosen to participate in this great work God has called us to. That every member is important, whether they're visible or in the less visible roles that we play. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word because it reminds us who we are and who you are. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of your glory, to be reminded, Lord, that uh, you have called each and every one of us for a purpose. And that, Lord, we won't uh, let our lights be hidden under a, a basket, but we'll set it up on a lampstand for the world to see like a city on a hill that when people see the light that we have because of Jesus Christ they may glorify you our father in heaven and Lord especially as we enter into this Christmas season opportunities abound for us to be a witness I pray, Lord, that you would help us to step up and do our part. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.